You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor Institute Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dermot Wheeler from NUI Galway. His paper was entitled Tudor Policy in the Midlands Territories of Lysianopoli, circa 1530-1603. So, following the collapse of the Geraldine Rebellion under Silken Thomas in 1537, and thus with the removal of the Kildare buffer zone, Leash and Offaly were exposed to the interventions of English-born governors, who would henceforth represent Crown Government. The Amours of Leash and the O'Connors of Offaly, the most prominent clans of their respective territories, had, for much of the later medieval period, threatened the Pale, but had been deterred, while it was under the protection of the Earls of Kildare. The collapse of this system, following Silken Thomas's rebellion, meant for the first time the Tudors were forced to deal directly with the Gaelic Lordships. Over the following 20 minutes, hopefully, this paper will discuss and analyse the key Tudor policies implied in the territories of Leach and Offaly by the Crown Administration. First, the policy of surrender and regrant. Second, the policy of plantation. And finally, the policy of martial government. So the eventual policy of surrender and grant and its ethos of a conciliatory approach did not start with the arrival of Anthony St. Ledger in 1540 can in fact be traced back some years earlier to the deputyship of Leonard Gray. At first, Gray's conciliatory policy was successful, as can be seen, for example, with the case of the Fitzpatrick clan of Upper Ossery, essentially a no-man's land wedged firmly between the two territories of Kilkenny and Leash, quote, belonging equally to both, yet standing independent of both. So Upper Ossery is larger than this uh, territory down here. You can see in the other map, in the bottom left-hand corner, the Fitzpatricks were forced to alter their allegiances in the wake of increasing Butler military power which had been on the rise since the early period of Henry VIII's reign. Faced with the possibility of being overrun by Butler military might and the very real possibility of Upper Ossery being retired as part of County Kilkenny, Brian Fitzpatrick, the chief of the clan, seized the initiative. He submitted to Lord Deputy Leonard Grey on the 8th of November 1537 and agreed to an early form of surrender and regrant with the Lord Deputy, swearing to hold his lands to the King, to adopt the English tongue, renounce the Pope, and conduct himself and govern Upper Ossery in a similar manner to the feudal border lords of the Pale, such as the Barons of Delvin and Slain. In return, the Crown gained a crucial Gaelic collaborator. Grey also temporarily subdued the O'Connors in Offaly, and in the process, clear passes through Gaelic terrain, which combined with the use of artillery, would serve as a future model for government advances in the similar environments. Upon arrival in July 1540, Gray's successor, Anthony St. Ledger, furthered Gray's work to bring about, quote, a cultural revolution in Ireland through the use of negotiations in an attempt to gradually transform the legal and social infrastructure of Ireland whilst leaving the political superstructures intact. St. Ledger intended to assimilate the Gaelic lordships gradually by persuasion rather than through coercion. Locally, the Gaelic political lordships would be broken down and restructured on the English model. Policy which he proposed became known as surrender and regret, essentially an acceptance of English law, land titles and land hunting customs by the Gaelic Lords in return for official government recognition, a title and security. 
surrendering the grant, a term popularised by William T. Butler, argued that its primary ambition and objective was the swift overhaul of the Gaelic landholding system in Ireland. In other words, it was Crown policy that essentially sought to fulfil Henry's comprehensive aspiration to, quote, unite settler and native in one commonwealth, uh, similar to what had been achieved in Wales. In Upper Ossery, Gray's earlier groundwork had proved fruitful for the administration. The Crown had gained an invaluable ally in the form of the Fitzpatrick clan. Brian conducted roles for the administration, including intelligence gathering, against not only his Gaelic neighbours, but also or the O'Moores and O'Connors, but also the Anglo-Irish lords, the Earls of Ormond, Tomond and Desmond. Brian's successor, Barnaby, raised as a courtier in London and a close friend of Edward VI, would prove particularly useful in campaigns, such as in 1556 in Ulster and in France from 1557-58 in the unsuccessful defence of Calais. He also provided assistance in expeditions against Shane O'Neill in Ulster. Um, not only was he a key factor in Upper Ossery remaining a loyalist ter- territory, he also assisted the Crown in crushing O'Moore and O'Connor rebel resistance throughout his life. Um, in his neighbouring territories of Leach and Offaly. His successor, Florence, proved just as useful during the Nine Years' War when he managed to retain Upper Ossery for the Crown. St. Ledger's initial success lay in the fact that he was willing to constructively assist and encourage the Gaelic chieftains towards the policy of surrendering the grant, such as the exemption of Gaelic chieftains from taxes they were unaccustomed to or incapable of paying. St. Ledger also placed greater emphasis on heavy military obligation and minimal rent that provided the Crown with an easier access to men rather than money. The traditional overlords of Leach and Offaly, the O'Moores and O'Connors, however, unlike the Fitzpatricks, largely refrained from collaboration with the Crown, and it seemed apparent that they would need a little more persuasion than their Gaelic counterparts in order to fully embrace surrendering the grant. The Crown therefore altered its approach somewhat within their territories by sponsoring the rise of their Gaelic vassal lords. The goal was that, in return for the freehold of their land, they would switch allegiance from their O'Moore O'Connor overlords to the Crown, thus negating both clans' threat to the Pale and the Leach Offaly plantation as well as reducing the Queen's expenses and thus become symbols of the advantages that loyalty to the Crown reap. Uh, Oma Kew Dempsey was one such vassal lord who realised the advantages that collaboration with the Crown could potentially have for his lordship of Clamalier. Wedged between both territories of Leach and Offaly and subordinate to both ruling clans, but predominantly the O'Connors, Owen seized the opportunity to break what he deemed the yoke of oppression of his overlords and secure his clan's independence. O'Dempsey, similar to the Fitzpatricks, was to prove indispensable to the government in combating O'Connor and O'Moore rebels throughout his life, most notably in 1558 when he hunted down and killed the rebel Donald McBrien O'Connor, uh, who had been a thorn in the side of the administration up to that point. His nephew and successor Terence, much like Barnaby's successor in Upper Ossery, managed to retain their territory, his territory of Clamalier for the administration during the Nine Years' War. P.J. Good argues that had turns declared for the rebels, it would have greatly destabilised an area referred to as, quote, such kind of strength that it were impossible for the enemy to pass to and fro without great damage. He also inflicted defeats on O'Neill forces in 1598 and again in 1599 in Queen's County. Within the O'Connor's territory of North and North East Offaly, policy of surrendering grant um, struggled to gain any significant ground within the lordship. The Crown's proposed candidate to ensure a viable settlement in the area, Kaharua, struggled to retain his position from his brother, Brian, who had the support of his clan and the essential military and political alliances of neighbouring Midland Lords as well as a crucial military base. Attempts to win Brian over to the policy proved difficult, as he was deemed too unreliable and rebellious to be trusted by the Crown. Upon St. Ledger's recall to London to answer charges of corruption in 1546, Brian O'Connor rebelled and was eventually driven into Connacht by the acting governor, William Brabazon, which I will discuss soon. His approach was... Uh, more heavy-handed and resulted in the isolation of the McBrien faction 
uh, of the O'Connors from the Crown. By the late 1540s, Brian was imprisoned in London, and Carrua, deemed the reliable Crown puppet, who had assisted in his, his brother in open rebellion, was sub- subsequently captured and executed. The government ultimately pardoned the O'Connors in an attempt to reconcile them with the Crown. By 1553, the clan had once again regained control of the territory, with the MacBrien faction the dominant force over the Macarua counterparts. Tensions soon boiled over, however, and a split formed within the clan. This division persuaded the Macarua faction that loyalism and closer collaboration with the Crown could assist them in the permanent overthrow of their nearest rivals, the MacBrien's. Thus, they submitted and were applied as Crown Kern. Between 1563 and 64, the government's land grants to Macarua's isolated the MacBrien faction. According to Fiona Fitzsimons, this distribution of land granted the administration the power of manipulation within the O'Connor polity. In future, the government hoped that the clan's primary goal would be to protect and retain their land instead of rebellion. The MacBrien's excluded from any land grants rebelled, but were ruthlessly and efficiently cut down by their loyalist counterparts. By 1569, the Macarua faction dominated the O'Connor lordship. Their military advantage, combined with their semi-client status as subjects of the crown, ensured that they would dominate a region of great importance and interest for the government, at the exclusion of their landless fellow clansmen. Now to the shortcomings of the policy. Within the territory of Eli O'Carroll in south-west Offaly, the O'Carrolls were faced with a dilemma following the collapse of the Geraldine Rebellion and the prospect of an English Lord Deputy in the early to mid-1530s. Their options were limited to two, submit to the Crown or attempt to remain independent as long as possible. Government troops could easily reach their territory relatively quickly, considering its geographical proximity to Dublin. However, the administration's armed forces were were relatively weak numerically, meaning their ability to actually maintain order within the territory would be greatly limited. Fergan Annam decided to submit to Lord Deputy Gray in June 1538 and received the terms under which he would rule his territory as the O'Carroll. In the meantime, St. Ledger's reform programme had started to cause the very dynastic struggles within lordships that it was supposed to prevent. Within the Gaelic lordship, succession was decided through the post-process of tenancy, the custom whereby the chieftainship should pass down to the eldest and the most worthy of the same bloodline, which left the succession open to the most ambitious within families. Surrender and grant meant that the introduction of succession along the lines of primogeniture, whereby the lordship would pass the eldest son, thereby excluding capable brothers and cousins with their own claims to the chieftaincy. As we will discuss within the O'Carroll clan in particular, primogeniture tended to cause even more hostility and unrest than usual. Between the years of 1541 and 1600, competing claimants to the O'Carroll chieftaincy usurped each other from power as the policy of surrendering the grant wreaked havoc within the clan. Uh, Fergan Annam was first to submit to Lord Deputy Gray in June 1538 and quickly gained full control of Eli. Peace prevailed for a time until factional disputes as a result of primogeniture boiled over and Fergan Annam was murdered and subsequently replaced by his eldest son, Tyg. Ty followed in his father's footsteps, but his growing power in turn bred resentment amongst his counterparts, and he was subsequently murdered by his brother William, who seized the, chief, seized the chieftainship for himself, unwilling to be passed over in the line of succession. He quickly realised his value to an, to an administration too weak, numerically speaking, to control Western Offaly. William would prove useful in providing manpower for the crown, such as in the mid-1550s. By 1578, he had established a former line of succession with the appointment of his eldest son, John, as his heir, thus abolishing tanistry in the eyes of the O'Carroll chieftaincy. John's tenure as chief was to prove particularly short as he was killed by a surviving, member of, uh, surviving son of Ty Keogh, who was subsequently deposed by Calvac or Charles. Um, William's, illegitimate son in fif- uh, William's illegitimate son in 1582... 
Charles's most notable contribution to the Crown was when he captured the least rebel, Brian Regal Moore, referred to as, quote, more dangerous there to the Queen's County, to Sir Charles O'Carroll's country, and those parts than Feet McHugh O'Byrne. By July 1598, the O'Carrolls and the Lylist branch and McCoughlin clan were cited as examples of how to increase royal revenue in Ireland, recover a troubled country, and to abate rebels. Um, quote, both are lords of great countries, uh, both have been rebels, yet both are subjects, but why? They have rivals. If they should not be subjects, they lose both lands and lives. Their surrender to Her Majesty is their only security. They are commended for their cutting off of the heads of some of their name and nation. But those heads which they send in are better pledges of their own security than any kind of assurances of their loyalties. This quotation alludes to the type of relationship that existed between the loyalist Gaelic clans and the administration, essentially a mutual relationship whereby both parties were equally reliant on the other in order to ensure their survival. In conclusion, the policy of surrender and grant provided great benefits uh, to those who remained faithful, including positions within the administration and various generous land grants. The policy would prove particularly fruitful for the O'Carrolls and Fitzpatricks, as it would finally free both from what they deemed butler oppression. In 1602, the Fitzpatricks' proven loyalty to the Crown was rewarded with the annexation of Upper Ossery to the Queen's County, preventing it from being reshired as part of Kilkenny. The O'Carrolls were rewarded in kind in 1605 when Eli officially became part of the King's County. Thus, both clans were secure in the knowledge that there could be no further attempts by the butlers to absorb or subjugate their territory within the Ormond Platinate. For smaller lordships, it offered a real sense of independence as well as the promise of military and financial security. For the Crown, Gaelic collaborators and Crown loyalists, in turn, were to prove indispensable and invaluable during periods of war and rebellion, which seemed relentless throughout the 16th century. Policy, on the other hand, also tore Gaelic clans, such as the O'Connors and the O'Carrolls in particular, apart. For those less willing to embrace collaboration with the Crown, or those deemed too rebellious and untrustworthy, they were essentially ostracised and excluded from the plantation and any considerable involvement within the new administration in the King Queen's counties. Nevertheless, surrendering a grant must be seen as somewhat of a success for the Crown as it ensured that it retained a foothold and presence within the Midlands, and the shires of King and Queen's counties in particular, well into the 17th century. So I'm going to move on now to the uh, policy of plantation. The period of 1547-1556 saw the collapse of the surrender and grant policy to a certain extent. The political situation in the Midlands adopted a different approach following St. Ledger's replacement by the hardliner Lord Justice William Brabazon. Confronted with Silken Thomas's rebellion soon after his arrival, Brabazon participated actively in military campaigns against the rebels. By 1536, he was described as the best captain in the Royal Army. His approach was to set the tone for Crown policy in the Midlands from that point onwards, moving away from St. Ledger's conciliatory approach towards more heavy-handed policy. Brabazon seems to have believed that militarised English colonies could conquer Ireland in a financially self-supporting manner, which he sought to demonstrate by his own proceedings. For the duration of his career, he promoted an aggressive strategy of conquest and colonisation of Gaelic-Irish areas outside of the Crown's control. In St. Ledger's absence, as referenced briefly earlier in the paper, Brian O'Connor once again broke the peace and conducted raids on the Pale. Brabazon retaliated and invaded both Offaly and Leish and stationed the garrison at Dangan. Brabazon's incursion was the beginning of a policy of refortifying the Midlands in an attempt to expand the Pale westwards. At court, raids were viewed as part of an international conspiracy involving the possibility of French intervention and the influx of Scots to Ulster. The monarch concluded that St. Ledger was failing to treat these threats with the seriousness which they deserved. The method thereby chosen to defend Ireland against these threats was the establishment of coastal fortifications and internal garrisons. The construction of forts thus became the defining characteristic of mid-Tudor rule in Ireland. Thomas Bartlett argues that it was in fact St. Ledger in the early 1530s 
infuriated and frustrated at the constant raiding by the O'Moores and the O'Connors and the Pale, before his policies of reform, had asserted that a submissive population was vital to security, and if one did not exist, it should be imported from England and the existing one expelled or simply pushed aside. St. Ledger returned to Ireland in December 1546, intent on the establishment of garrisons in both Leach and Offaly. Brian O'Connor's uprising, in collaboration with the O'Moores was subsequently defeated with the landing of Sir Edward Bellingham in Ireland in May 1547. He reinforced Brabzon's position and established Fort Governor at Dangan, erected on the site of O'Connor's chief seat, and this newly developed tactic of planting a garrison in a recently subdued area was repeated many times as the century progressed. Bellingham subsequently established Fort Protector in what was known as the time as Port Leisha, as well as the installation of a new garrison in Athlone. These forts, although intended to protect the Pale, committed the state and its resources to the use of a far greater measure of sustained force than had been anticipated. So what advantages did the policy plantation offer the Crown and how was it viewed from an English perspective? In theory, plantations were desirable because they offered royal officials a means of achieving both security at a low cost and profit. Planters hoped to attract ex-soldiers trained in arms who would become settlers and in turn would keep the natives under control, without the need for a large standing army. Plantations also meant profit, as there was extensive territory to be acquired by ambitious royal officials, adventurers and even the monarch. Enthusiasts for plantations, some of Irish-born, perceived the idea of colonisation via plantation as an excellent restraint on the native Irish. They felt that once models of English of civilised living were displayed before their eyes, they would abandon their ways and seek to emulate the newly arrived colonists, and in a short period of time, begin to live like the new English arrivals, or indeed like the old English. The Edwardian Welsh scholar William Tyrell Thomas argued that this would bring the nation from rude, beastly, ignorant, cruel and unruly infidels to the state of civil, reasonable, patient, humble and well-governed Christians. Um, a combination of continuous resistance by the O'Moores and O'Connors against Crown Authority and the leash offaly Plantation, in addition to the mounting fear that a French invasion of Ireland was imminent, imminent, provided Sussex with the justification for martial law. Brady interestingly highlights another reason why it was implemented. The new shire, shires uh, merely existed as legal fiction, constantly harassed by raids about Lord Woodcairn of the O'Moores and O'Connors. As a result, Sussex had grown disheartened with his failure to impose successful plantation and had simply lost interest in the venture. Martial law meant that Sussex could employ the officers he had originally envisaged for uh, his policy to act as planter captains and trust to defend and regain the territory if need be. According to Brady, these were men who preferred to surround themselves with other men who enjoyed the company of a hawk, a whore and a hound, to men who read their Bibles. Uh, Sussex's intolerance for insubordination and unrest meant that he implemented martial law with a particular fervour, using terror to maintain order at low cost with a limited number of troops. From the 1550s onwards, martial law and arbitrary killings had embittered relations between settlers and natives. Repeated uprising by the dispossessed native inhabitants of both territories resulted in the government's reliance on the policy of martial law in the hopes of maintaining law and order and preserving the fragile plantation which throughout the latter half of the 16th century only ever seemed to hang on by the skin of its teeth. Although the policy was never wholly abandoned, the government's reliance on the policy decreased from 1586 onwards, following Elizabeth's strict instructions from London to embrace, quote, temperate and peaceable government in Ireland. The ever-looming prospect of war with Spain most likely the motive behind such a move. It is clear that the government's reliance on seneschals and planter captains to maintain law and order within the colonies did not advance English law in the territories to any significant degree. In fact, Vincent Carey argues that martial law resulted in the complete isolation and deterioration of Gaelic government relations, with the exception of those that collaborated with the Crown. 
The end result of this extended process and the changes in policy enacted by the Tudor government did not alleviate the problem. In fact, in many cases, it aggravated the situation and oftentimes resulted in massacres such as at Mulligamast in 1578, which essentially eradicated the heart of the O'Moore and O'Connor political elite. Nevertheless, martial law ensured that the plantation survived, even during the tumultuous Nine Years' War, despite both Maryborough and Phillipstown being burned in the early stages of the conflict, and persevered into the 17th century. By 1610, there was evidence of significant agricultural activities in both areas for the first time, with the majority of land grants earlier in the century still in the hands of the families of the original recipients. The Irish Commission of 1622 deemed the plantation, quote, for the most part, well-built and peopled by the English. Essentially, an English Protestant landed elite had come to dominate both territories by the middle of the 17th century, equipped with the principal resources of both counties and a substantial portion of productive land. However, Nicholas Canney argues that the settlers remained a distinct and very visible minority within both counties, and it was clearly evident that very little had been achieved beyond the enforcement of an English appearance upon territories that were essentially Irish in character. In other words, dominated by the native inhabitants and largely still Catholic. It is clear, however, that the Crown did not share this belief and viewed the Leishoffley plantation as a success as, it's, as it had seen the installation of a loyal settler society and the suppression of previously rebellious territories. Thank you.